0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
1: Good evening and welcome to the WMMS 10th anniversary concert. I'm Kid Leo and I have the, uh, the duty and the pleasure of welcoming, ladies and gentlemen, the main event. Round for round. Pound for pound, there ain't no finer band around. Bruce Springsteen and the 8th Street Band!
0: In 1978, Bruce Springsteen's career reached new heights. Following the release of his album, Darkness on the Edge of Town, Springsteen embarked on a massive tour that would see the wall between performer and fan come down. Springsteen had connected with his followers in a way no performer before him had, and for multiple nights in 78, that connection reached its peak in Northeast Ohio during a run of shows that still rank among the most celebrated of the boss's career. Told by those who were there and others who wish they were, you're listening to CLE Rocks. And this is the story of how Bruce Springsteen's Darkness brought light to his career and made Ohio his second home. Hello, the opening chords of Bruce Springsteen's most iconic album are By Now, the Stuff of Legend. Born to Run kicks off with the sublime sounds of Thunder Road.
1: Screen Door salams,
0: Mary's Dress way. Like a vision she dances across the porch as the radio plays. Revisionist history might suggest Springsteen's nineteen seventy five album was his breakthrough, the moment he became the boss, America's most relatable and beloved rock and roll icon. The reality is far different. Springsteen's first two albums, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, and The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle, both released in 1973, hardly made a dent with mainstream audiences. By the time he and his band entered the studio to record Born to Run, Springsteen felt his recording career was on the line, something E Street band member Stephen Van Zandt readily admits.
1: Born to Run was sort of a, it could go either way, you know, I mean, because his first two records, you know, didn't do that well, and, uh, you know, and Born to Run could have been the end of the story. So Born to Run kind of kept the thing alive, but it wasn't as big a hit as people think, you know. It really wasn't a hit at all.
0: Born to Run did what it needed to. The album was critically acclaimed. Rolling Stone's Grill Marcus wrote, It is the drama that counts. The stories Springsteen is telling are nothing new, though no one has ever told them better or made them matter more. <laughs> Born to Run performed well on the charts, debuting at number 84 on the Billboard 200 before eventually working its way into the top five. Springsteen had appeased his record label and silenced many doubters, but his career still wasn't firmly on the right track. A lawsuit filed against his manager and publisher, Mike Appel, would lead to a three-year gap between albums. Lawrence Kirsch, publisher of Springsteen books The Light in the Darkness and For You, recalls it being a time of great uncertainty for Springsteen and his fans.
2: Pre-social uh, media, pre-internet, pre-emails—you know—you you had no inside information or even, you know, I mean, so basically you had to wait for a Cream magazine, Rolling Stone magazine, and even even then, because there was no album, um, you know, to to report because Born to Run came out in August of 1975. Bruce was prohibited from recording his uh, any of his brand new music for at least two years to 1977. So we were sort of like totally incommunicado uh, and uh, Bruce was off the map. And back then, it was a long time if an artist didn't release an album for at least uh, a year or two. So we we, we didn't know what you know, what was going on with Bruce? I mean, you really didn't know what the status of his career was, what the status of, uh, you know, any new music was going to be, and really there was no way to find out.
0: When Springsteen finally re-entered the recording studio in 1977, he carried with him the reverberations of an album recorded under massive pressure and the lengthy legal battle that followed. Darkness on the Edge of Town was less optimistic than its predecessor, but more mature and insightful, which Flynn McLean. Co-host of the Springsteen-themed podcast, None But the Brave, says allowed the singer to connect even more with his audience.
3: It's the realities of life. If you can look at Born to Run being about a kind of a romanticized version of, you know, we're pulling out of here to win, whereas darkness is about more of the realities. The darkness, so to speak, of Candy's room about, you know, he knows he's sharing this girl with other people. And that that can't be a good feeling it's not just him and her against the world and then certainly bad ends a lot of it's just pretty much facing the darkness or the harshness of of adult life from what I can tell a lot of fans came of age you know graduated high school or started college or graduated college in that time span in which you know right around when it came out so it kind of hit home in, in reality for for some people well, got a secret song.
1: something that they just can't some folks spend their lives trying to keep it. They carry it well every step that they take.
0: Lawrence Kirsch agrees, pointing out that fans took to Springsteen's transition from the hope and optimism of his first three albums to the realities of being an adult on Darkness.
2: It was really a counterpoint to the elegance of Born to Run. Darkness was uh, an album full of uh, angry raw uh, energy that he obviously had pent up after a three-year hiatus from recording. And this is a, a, a mature Bruce. You know, we're we're now hearing songs um, about the responsibility of being a man, a working man, a provider for one's family, different from the previous three albums, which were basically beach, boardwalk, girls, cars, you know, all fun songwriting topics. But now we're talking about, you know, facing maturity, uh, facing uh, reality of what it is to be a person with responsibilities. I think that fans really uh, tweaked to this transition, you know, from, let's say, party times, good times, to, okay, I'm serious now. And I'm going to be, you know, you know, writing about the social condition, about how, you know, what it is to be a responsible person in in this life.
0: The Darkness Tour began on May 23rd, 1978 in Buffalo, New York. Springsteen and the band traveled across North America and back again, playing halls, theaters, some arenas, while visiting major cities, smaller markets, and college towns. The first eight shows took place before the release of Darkness on the Edge of Town. Every show after served as a celebration for an album that held its own on the top five on the charts. It stands as perhaps Springsteen's greatest tour, and one Van Zant remembers as a huge benchmark for the band.
1: That was, in a lot of ways, our first real national tour. You, you know, the first time we really started to have a little bit of uh, stability, You know what I mean? You know, because Frank Barcelona had gotten involved, who was an extraordinarily important agent back when, you know, agents were important. And his endorsement and him getting on board at that point, John Landau had gotten involved as a manager at that point, you know, and it was really our first national tour feeling like, okay, you know, we haven't quite made it yet, but we are definitely uh, making progress you know we, we you know a lot of energy in that tour cuz Cause, cause we had been in a you know studio you know the, the birth of that album was tough um that took years and 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 even the born and run album had been a, a very difficult album to make and so we had been in a studio for a couple of years so we came out really with a lot of energy you know so that that really was in, in many ways our really first significant tour and that's when we I think really started to blow minds because we got around the country and uh and people were coming and seeing that energy that we were communicating and really started to build an audience that stayed with us to this day
0: the darkness tour may perhaps be springsteen and the E street band's most legendary run and it is without question one of his bands most remembered primarily due to a series of shows that were broadcast live on radio stations. The tour featured several iconic live recordings, including one on July 7th at the Roxy in Hollywood and September 30th at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. But most Springsteen historians agree. The Darkness Tour's peak moment came on August 9th at Cleveland's Agora Ballroom, a performance that remains the most coveted live recording of the boss's career.
3: Those basically became the five de facto live album of, of his career because they were they were spread so far so wide in, in recorded format so that people people knew what he was what he was doing on stage and, and they could tell that he was you know, really reaching deep for it and he was co- really connecting with a lot of people that tour established him as a cult artist certainly you know basically Ohio Ohio to Boston and down to DC that whole area he was able to to, to sell arenas in 78.
0: The concert, sandwiched between a show at Wing Stadium in Kalamazoo and a performance at the War Memorial in Rochester, New York, served as the 10th anniversary celebration for Cleveland's influential rock and roll station, WMMS. The station, and its top DJ, Kid Leo specifically, had proven pivotal in helping spread Springsteen's music early on in his career.
1: The the importance of of DJs in those days and, and, and freeform radio, it was all about that. DJs played whatever they wanted to. And, you know, Kid Leo was only one of uh, half a dozen. I mean, literally six guys in the country kept Bruce Springsteen's uh, music alive. And Kid Leo was one of them. And not only was he one of them, Kid Leo was number one in the market. When even the other big rock stations, you know, would be number two, number three, number four. You know, maybe the sports station or the top forty station would be, you know, number one. But even the other big rock stations were very rarely number one in their market. And Kid Leo was—he was the king of Cleveland, and 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 he not only played, you know, Bruce every every I think every Friday to start the weekend at the end of his shift, he played Born to Run, you know, and he did that for for, for like a year. So Kid Leo was an enormous, enormous reason why we were so popular in Cleveland.
0: Kid Leo would open the show with a classic introduction of Springsteen, who then broke into a cover of Summertime Blues.
1: Cleveland, how you doing? Are you ready to shake
0: them Summertime Blues? The concert was simulcast on WMMS, with thousands at home with their own recorders positioned next to their radios. Maureen Lewis was a 16-year-old intern working in WMMS's mailroom at the time. She got to attend the show, which she remembers as a hot summer night that was flawless.
4: You know what? It went perfectly. Is I didn't realize how nervous everybody was because they were going to broadcast this live, and that was a big deal in this relatively small venue Um, and it went, it went perfectly. Everybody was like kind of high-fiving after each, it's not like a set, but like maybe two or three songs and then there'd be a breakdown and then two or three songs and there'd be a breakdown and they're like, yeah, it's going, it's happening. And the lights were right and the mics were right. And, we were really concerned about heat, and it cooled off. It just was, it was flawless. And I don't, I mean, technology now, you could make that happen so easily. But at the time, I mean, we were running cords to generators out in an alley. It was nuts. You knew a lot of eyes were on you, but you didn't realize how big it was at the time.
0: Springsteen breezed through favorites like Thunder Road, Racing in the Street, and Jungle Land. And that was just during the first half of the concert. A 10-minute version of Prove It All Night would serve as the absolute peak moment in a concert of many memorable moments. The Agora Concert's legacy has only grown through the decades. Even Springsteen, never a fan of bootlegs, would wind up officially releasing the concert as a live album through the Bruce Springsteen archives in 2014.
4: I did not know until decades later that that was the most bootlegged concert. I don't know if it still is, but it was at the time. Like People just set up their recording um, equipment next to their radios because we broadcast it live. And those reel-to-reel tapes went out and... It was a, like years later, decades later, I'm still thinking like, oh, my gosh, we were there. And it was just like this hot night in kind of this garage setting because is small. Yeah, it was, you look back on it and think that was bigger than we thought it was.
0: Springsteen's relationship with Northeast Ohio had been established prior to 78, having played multiple shows at various venues in the mid-1970s. Bruce had even built friendships with a group of admirers known as the Cleveland Boys. Their relationship began with the charity softball game they played with Springsteen during a trip to Asbury Park in 1976. The Cleveland Boys even make a cameo during the Agora concert. We go.
4: Cleveland Boys,
0: a little party noise! <laughs> Three weeks after the legendary concert at the Agora, Springsteen and the E Street Band would play Richfield Coliseum. The August 30th, 1978 concert is the least heralded of his Darkness tour stops in Northeast Ohio, due mainly to no audio recording in existence. In fact, the concert is more famous for what happened afterwards. Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, a band formed by Steven Van Zandt, then known as Miami Steve, prior to his career taking off with the E Street Band, was playing the Agora the same night as Springsteen's Richfield Concert. Southside Johnny's show concluded with special guest appearances by Springsteen, Van Zandt, and the E Street Band. The group had booked it all the way from Richfield to the Agora by the end of the show. Bruce and company performed the Jukes' I Don't Want to Go Home, The Fever, and Having a Party with the Band. Johnny! On
4: the table!
0: It would become an iconic moment from the Darkness Tour run itself, but it wasn't the last time Springsteen would touch down in Northeast Ohio in 1978. The Darkness Tour would conclude after 115 shows with a two-night stand at Richfield Coliseum on December 30th, 1978, and January first, nineteen seventy-nine. Kirsch a Canadian resident at the time, attended both shows, which he said were a celebration of the career-changing showcase Springsteen had been on for the better part of eight months.
2: For all those fans uh, that had, you know, seen different shows from Los Angeles, you know, to the Madison Square Garden, all those fans knew that they were going to congregate in Cleveland, to cap off in an incredible year, because the energy that you got from it—it it, it really was like a drug. I mean, he, he came out, he did three hours, three hours plus. It was a—it was a physical uh, workout, and for those fans who had seen any of the shows and, and knew that this was going to be, you know, the conclusion to 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 one of the best tours they had ever seen, they just basically wanted to rub shoulders with everybody else under the same roof and just be there to see what Bruce was going to do for us. And, you know, he didn't disappoint.
0: Kirsch recalls Springsteen and the band wearing a bit of exhaustion from playing more than 100 concerts. But the celebration never waned, save for the first night's most infamous moment, when a fan threw a firecracker on stage, hitting Springsteen in the side of the face.
2: All of a sudden, uh, you hear uh, some bangs, and Miami Steve freaked out and immediately uh, ran over to Bruce started talking to him unless maybe you were in the first or second row you had no idea what was going on but you did notice that uh a few people were gathering around bruce and starting to attend to him and he immediately left the stage uh when he came back to the stage he had a band-aid this this firecracker that basically was thrown at the stage i i really don't think that it was there was any malintent in it but it was just someone who just got too caught up in the um New Year's Reverie and started throwing firecrackers. Um and one of them bounced off his face. actually created a cut uh just below his eye. Miami Steve, I mean he was flipping out, he um uh took took the mic and uh in no, no uncertain words, uh basically told the person that uh <laughs> stop being an idiot and if um you know, they wanted to continue to do such a thing. The, you know, they can be shown the door where you can throw, you know, sh- um, throw as many firecrackers as they like. And then Bruce reiterated that as well. And under the circumstances, uh, I thought Bruce may have n- never come back to the stage. And to be honest, I would suggest that 99.9% other per percent of other performers, if that had happened to them, that would have been the end of the show. But Bruce, he came out. He was not going to miss, you know, the reverie of New Year's, um, uh, celebrating with, you know, the rest of the band, and and his fans.
0: The set list that first night would conclude with an encore featuring Born to Run, 10th Avenue Freeze Out, and a cover of Gary U.S. Bond's Quarter to Three. Springsteen's relationship with Cleveland at the time, and even since, can be hard to put into words. He's played well over 30 concerts in Northeast Ohio during his career. Van Zant attributes things to timing and a love of rock and roll.
1: And the audience in those days, you know, did not have a whole lot to cheer about. You know, this is before the before the stadium. This is when, you know... The river was so polluted it caught fire. You know, it was a it was a tough, tough, down and dirty town in those days, and so they didn't have a whole lot to cheer about. You know, but so uh, except for rock and roll, you know, so rock and roll really kept Cleveland uh, uh, alive and, and uh, entertained. And uh, so we made regular trips there because you go where you're popular.
0: Cleveland music historian and author Pete Chakarian sees the relationship as one that put Springsteen at ease throughout his career. Cleveland offered a sense of comfort for the boss he couldn't get in many places.
3: The December 31st, 78, January 1st, 79 sort of cemented that special relationship, if you will, that Cleveland has had with Springsteen. He often would come through Cleveland before he would hit big places like New York because he could try out things on audiences here and the audiences would eat it up kind of without judgment. So he could pretty much do no wrong here. And I think would feel then emboldened to go from a place like Cleveland into New York city or to a place like Los Angeles where he knew the critics were going to kind of have him under the microscope. And he really had his 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 guts were all in check.
0: 1978, which served as a touchstone for Springsteen's relationship with Ohio and his career in general. Springsteen biographer Dave Marsh once compared the Darkness tour to Dylan's run with the band in 66, the Who's Tommy tour in 69, and the Rolling Stones' 1972 North American tour. Kirsch sees the tour as Springsteen's stepping stone to mainstream success. Setting the stage for 1980's The River, his first major hit Hungry Heart, and then Born to Run, an album that would make Springsteen one of the biggest rock stars of all time.
2: And that set the stage for everything that was to come after that. Born in the USA, um, you know, humongous hits, you know, I mean, and now we're talking about Bruce selling out arenas you know, uh, on big, big tours, arenas. Um, And that basically set the stage for Bruce's touring, for Bruce's albums, for, let's call it Bruce Incorporated. He now is a bona fide star, a star on a magnitude that, you know, rivaled anybody else during, you know, the 1980s.
0: Thank you for listening to CLE Rocks. Podcast from the birthplace of rock and roll. I'd like to thank everyone who participated in the episode, which was made possible via Squadcast. For more episodes, check out CLE Rock's page on ACAST, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. I'm your host, Troy L. Smith. Until next time.